Tonight's talk is on karma. If we want to be happy, if we want to experience peace of mind and freedom from suffering, if we want to be able to spread happiness in this world, we must go beyond thinking of our practice as just what we do on the cushion or in the meditation hall. Norman Fisher, a Zen teacher, puts it very beautifully. Practice has two parts, sitting down and getting up. When we sit down, we calm, clear, and illuminate the mind. When we get up, we live our life in this world as an extension and expression of the beauty of our sitting. Sitting down and getting up together comprise a full and mature human being one who is receptive and open, but also responsible and committed. One of the shortest of the Buddhist sutras goes thus, This is the teaching of the Buddhas, avoiding doing all harm, accomplishing of good, and purifying one's own mind. Sometimes it's said that the Buddha presented his teachings as a tripod. A tripod is a very um, stable stool. If you have a stool with three legs, it's very stable. It doesn't tip over easily. And we see this tripod in this short sutra. The teaching of the Buddhas is to avoid harm, to accomplish what is good, and to purify our minds. All three parts of this practice is about creating positive and wholesome karma in our lives. This word karma is thrown out a lot these days. It's uh, entered mainstream society. Actually, it has for a while. I think back when I was a, a young person, people used there used to be bumper stickers, my karma just ran over your dogma. Um, I just read in a magazine yesterday that a new car came out called Karma. And there's this um, show on TV called My Name is Earl. Most of it's pretty silly. It's a pretty mainstream show. It's on, you know, prime time, whatever. And, uh, you know, a lot of it's pretty silly, but the whole premise of the show is that there's this guy and um, bad things keep happening to him. And so he does some reflection and he comes to the realization that bad things are happening to him because of karma, because of all the bad things he's done in his life. So he makes a list of all the um, people that he's harmed and he decides he's going to make amends and go down his list and uh, make amends. So there's a little understanding of karma there. There's the understanding that um, our actions have consequences. But I think a full and deep understanding of karma is um, definitely missing from the mainstream. So we'll try to look at that a little bit tonight and see what kind of understanding we can develop. This word karma, the literal translation is action and specifically intentional action. Intentional action plus its result, plus its consequences, is called kama vipaka, 
which means the law of karma. So the law of karma is action and consequence, or cause and effect. As you sow, so shall you reap. This understanding of karma is considered essential for our liberation because it's one of the natural laws of the universe. It's just like gravity. Gravity is a law of the universe. We don't ask if gravity exists or not. It's just part of how this universe functions. And the same thing with karma. It's part of how this universe functions. Sometimes in our Judeo-Christian background, we might think of kama as kind of like punishment. You get what you deserve. But that's not um, the flavor of kama. The flavor of kama is that this is a natural law. This is how the world works, that our actions have consequences. It's said that we can't understand the exact workings of kama. It's one of what are known as the imponderables. The Buddha said there's several questions that we can't answer, or several um, things that are so big that they're imponderable, we can't figure them out. So the exact workings of kama, like, for example, you know, I did this, so so later, years later, this happened to me because of that, and that, that's a direct um, consequence of that action. We can't always tell. It said it's kind of like a spider web. If you look at a spider web, you can't really say where it begins or where it ends. It it just extends in so many ways. But we can see that this law of karma is true, that it holds true. That we can understand, and we can understand um, what it means for us about how we'd like to live our lives. The law of karma means that if we're going to have peace and freedom in our lives, we have to take responsibility for our actions. In the sutras, we often talk of three kinds of action. Action of mind, action of body, and action of speech. The law of karma says that we don't get to blame others for our lives. It's the ultimate philosophy of personal responsibility. And it means that our actions, whether wholesome or unwholesome, count no matter how small. The Buddha said, do not overlook negative actions merely because they are small. However, however small a spark may be, it can burn down a haystack as big as a mountain. Do not overlook tiny good actions, thinking they are of no benefit. Even tiny drops of water in the end will fill a huge vessel. It's said that our actions are are our only true belongings. All beings are the owners of their kama. Their happiness and sorrow depend upon their kama. 
In a religion that talks about non-self and impermanence, it's said to be the one thing that we can truly own is our kama. It's said to be our inheritance. Kama is likened to planting seeds. Eventually, a seed sprouts when the conditions come together, when the right conditions come together. So it's said that kama ripens when there are the right conditions. Then we see the result of kama. So if you plant uh, chili peppers and the conditions come together right, you get enough rain, sun, warm weather, not like March 31st here in Massachusetts. (laughs) It's said that if you... Uh, plant these chili seeds and the conditions come together, you'll get chili peppers. And if you plant apple seeds and the conditions come together correctly, you'll get apples. If we act in unwholesome ways, we'll get pain and suffering. If we act in wholesome ways, we'll get happiness and peace. So the more seeds of a certain kind of plant that we sow, the more likely we'll see that fruit in the future. Each moment we're creating the future through the kinds of seeds that we are sowing in that moment. So Kama is actually a very positive philosophy. It's saying that every moment we're creating our future. We can always start anew each moment offers us a fresh opportunity to plant seeds of happiness. So Kama is not a fatalistic uh, doctrine as it's commonly misunderstood. The Buddha wasn't um, absolutist. Planting new seeds can affect the old ones. Kama can be Changed, it's mutable. Each moment, as I said, is fresh. During the Buddhist time, some believed that everything was predetermined, so it didn't matter what you did. You might as well just have a good time. Rather hedonistic philosophy. And then there were others during the time of the Buddha that were on the opposite end of the spectrum. They said that Everything you did, the Jains, they were called, they said that everything you did had comic results, whether you were aware of it or not, whether it was intentional or not. And so they practiced absolute harmlessness. They would sweep the path before they walked so they wouldn't kill insects. They wore filters over their mouths so that they wouldn't breathe little beings and kill them. The Buddha preach something in the middle, the middle way. He said that what we do matters based on our motivation, that the motivation is the most important piece of our actions, why we're doing something, what is motivating us to do something. Chetana in Pali, intention or motivation, chetana. So when we consider karma, we really have to look at the question of the motivation behind our actions. 
we see that our lives come out of many conscious and unconscious decisions that we make continually. And in practice, we're trying to make those decisions more conscious and more wholesome, leading to more happiness. So when I use the word wholesome, I'm talking about skillful or beneficial or intelligent actions, actions that bring happiness. So wholesome motivations might be motivations of metta or compassion or wisdom, renunciation, generosity, patience. And when we talk about unwholesome motivations or actions, we're talking about unskillful, not beneficial, foolish motivations that lead to suffering. So these would be motivations of greed or aversion, delusion. then some actions are considered neutral, comically neutral, and those are unintentional actions such as breathing or an accident, for example, if we accidentally step on an ant without meaning to. So if our actions are inspired by greed, hatred, ignorance, then surely suffering will follow. And if our actions are inspired by love and compassion and wisdom, surely happiness will follow. The karma we reap from our actions comes from the motivation behind the action, not the action. We can see that we can do the same thing from many different uh, motivations. Let's say we're a receptionist in a clinic. One way we may look at what we do in the clinic, our job would be we're waiting for 5 o'clock to come so we could go home. That wouldn't be exactly a wholesome intention, impatience, uh, aversion perhaps. Another way we may look at our job is that we are Um, making a living so that we can support our family. Another way we might look at our job is that we are working on a team to try to make a, um, a happy atmosphere at our work. Another way we may look at our job is that we're providing service. So there can be many different motivations for the same action. We also have the power to mitigate past karma by tending the soil of the present moment, if we want to use the seed metaphor again. So if we have weak and unhealthy soil, weeds sprout easily. I have a garden every year. I um, 
or vegetables. And I know that this is true. If your soil isn't very good, you're going to get more weeds. And so if our soil in the present moment isn't very good, we're going to get more weeds in our mind. But if we tend our soil carefully, bringing in more nutrients, making it fresh, just like you're doing here by coming on retreat, if we do that and have healthier soil, then we will have healthier plants, more wholesome plants. Again, to show that kama isn't um, fatalistic or deterministic, it's said that there's five different actions that can affect, or five factors that can affect how strong the kama is from an action. And I find these interesting because you can really feel them yourselves. For example, persistent and repeated action has a stronger comic effect. And you can see that. It's very obvious. If you do something over and over again, it gets a groove in your mind, whether it's wholesome or unwholesome. So if we're generous, and we're generous often, it creates this kind of power of that force of good in our minds. We can feel it from the repetition. On the other hand, if we do something unskillful over and over again, we can feel that same accumulative power of the negative impact in our minds. Another thing that affects the comma from an action or another factor is action done with great intention and determination. And again, that makes sense. If we do something and we're really determined and really intent on it, then the comma is going to be stronger. Another factor is action done with regret. I think this would be for unwholesome actions, that when we do unwholesome actions and, that, and we feel regret, that that's actually um, wholesome, that that helps um, mitigate the kama. Then actions done towards those with extraordinary qualities, that makes kama more powerful whether, again, it's wholesome or unwholesome. I felt this, I've mentioned in several of my talks, um, my time in Burma, and there was a monk there that we loved so much, or still love, he's still alive, Miyatong Saida, and we called him the happy monk, and uh, really one of the coolest people I've ever met. And uh, when I was there last year, I had some cough syrup left over after... um, I had brought some cough syrup. You have to kind of bring whatever you might need. And uh, I had some left over, and I wanted to give it to him because he, he suffered often from bronchitis. He's 92 years old. And um, so I left the cough syrup specifically for him with this one doctor who helped out the monks a lot, monks and nuns. And I felt, for me, the gift felt powerful because of who he was and his presence and his level of... Um, development, purity, that there's more power giving that gift to him. I could feel it. And the last factor that modifies karma is action done towards benefactors. So those who have helped you in some way, your actions towards them are considered to be more uh, strong, comically speaking. Again, whether wholesome or unwholesome.
Sometimes if it seems difficult to understand kama, I like to ask people to do a simple experiment, and you're welcome to do it if you'd like. So in this experiment, just take a moment and reflect on some action that you did in the past that was unskillful, unwholesome, caused harm to somebody or yourself. And as you remember this action, feel what your mind and heart feel like. What is the state of your mind and heart when you remember this action? And now, take a moment and remember some time that you did an act of kindness or generosity when you did something to help somebody else or some wholesome action that you took. And as you're remembering this action, feel the state of your heart and your mind. So from this simple experiment, we can see what I would call as a comic imprint of our actions. We see that our actions um, directly cause us happiness or sorrow in our minds. I'm assuming that most of you, when you remember the unwholesome action, the mind felt darker or tighter, more closed in more tension. And I'm assuming that when you remembered the beneficial or wholesome action that your mind felt light and spacious and open, relaxed, happy. In practice, we're really trying to understand this correlation between our actions and suffering and our actions and happiness. And that little experiment can give us um, a direct understanding of kama. So we often see in our meditation, it doesn't take too long, uh, that unethical and unwholesome actions weigh and cloud and disturb the mind. I remember my first retreat here in 1984 and... uh, I went through a long period, it seemed pretty long, where I began to remember all the unethical things I'd done in my life. Most of them weren't super huge, but it didn't seem to matter. It seemed that my mind wanted to just kind of do a life review and pick out um, the things that I'd done that weren't so skillful. I still even remember a couple of them. I'd borrowed a shirt from a friend. She'd lent it to me, and I'd kind of liked it, so I'd kind of forgotten to return it. <laughs> you know, that's not huge, but it, it, there's, a, there's an unwholesomeness there for sure. <laughs> or I remember that, that um, my father, um, I'd been staying with my father the summer before this retreat. I was, I was quite young. I didn't really have my own home yet. And um, I needed some sheets for the retreat, and I, I borrowed them without asking him. 
I was going to return them. But, you know, it's like there's always I wasn't this or that. But, you know, still it, it, it came up in my mind and just the unwholesomeness of that. And I would see that that weighed the mind. It's a great learning. But likewise, we also see that when we engage in wholesome actions that they stay with us too and they lighten our minds, fill our minds with happiness and joy. And a happy, light mind progresses more easily in meditation. So we see that the choices we make... um, have this ripple effect that go outward, and we see that the choices we make over time begin to develop our character in one direction or another. This is Kama. And we can watch, we can watch this Kama um, on retreat, too. We can watch how, uh, pay attention to our actions and their consequences in that first long retreat in 1984, I had this rule for myself that however much food I took, I had to eat it all. And I, it never, never ceased to amaze me how the amount of food on my plate at the serving table looked very different than the amount of food when I got to my table to sit down and eat. It it always looked like a lot more when I sat down to eat than it did up at the serving table. Um, and, and it was some deep conditioning of mine that I didn't seem to be able to really get that. So um, I, I often would get quite full. And, um, and, I, and I would see that as kind of the comic result of not being able to um, work with uh, the um, unwholesome tendencies of mind that were happening up at the table. But also sometimes what would happen is people, um, they would run out of food. And I would just watch that happen. I would watch that maybe I'd taken a lot of something and then, other pe- and then I didn't need it all. And, and then other people didn't get enough. And it was just, just, just noticing that kind of the, the action and the consequence. I don't remember getting super hard on myself. I just remember saying to myself, look, pay attention here. Learn. Or we can also notice on retreat um, and at home that when we're mindless and hurry, that we're more likely to accidentally sweep that spider up rather than taking care and taking it outside. Just little things like that. We see how mindlessness is unwholesome and causes um, actions that aren't wholesome. So the whole point is about learning through mindfulness. Mindfulness is said to be the guardian of our karma. It gives us choice. It gives us um, a chance to survey our motivations, see if they're appropriate or helpful. It gives us time to choose better. So we, we cultivate mindfulness of our actions, our words, our thoughts, 
in order to see where they're leading. Are they leading to suffering or are they leading to happiness? There's a sutra where the Buddha is talking to his son who had ordained, and he was talking to his son about how to decide what actions to take. And he tells him, he said, first of all, he says, if there's an action that you want to take, either an action of body or thought or, or speech, you should reflect uh, beforehand. Does this action or will this action that I'm about to perform, will it be conducive to my own harm, to the harm of others, or to the harm of both? If so, this action is unskillful, it entails suffering, and produces pain and should not be undertaken. However, if on the other hand, when we reflect about an action, or he says to Rahula, when you reflect about an action and you see that this action that you want to perform will not conduce to the suffering of yourself, to the suffering of others, or to the suffering of both, then that action is skillful. It actually says, then skillful is this bodily action entailing pleasure and producing happiness, such bodily action you should perform. So he talks about before you do an action to really think, is this going to be skillful? Is it going to lead to suffering or harm to myself or, or not, and to others or not? And then he says, during the, the action, you make the same reflection. Is this action that I'm doing now, is it leading to suffering for others, for myself or for both? Or is it not? Should I continue doing it or should I not? And then he says, after an action... One should reflect in the same way. The action I undertook, did it lead to suffering or did it lead to happiness? Pretty um, complete before, during, and after. And then the after is really about learning, looking at our actions and learning from them, whether they cause happiness or sorrow. The Buddha said that it's actually better to do something unskillful mindfully so that at least we can learn. It's better to do it mindfully than mindlessly because if we do it mindfully, at least we can learn. A little story about learning. After a long, hard climb up the mountain, the spiritual seeker finally found themselves. The spiritual seekers finally found themselves in front of the great teacher. Bowing deeply, they asked the question that had been burning inside them for so long: How do we become wise? There was a pause until the teacher emerged from his meditation. Finally, the reply came: Good choices. But teacher, how do we make good choices? From experience, responded the wise one. And how do we get experience? Bad choices, smiled the teacher. So we're not always going to make the best choices. This is uh, life, we make mistakes. But if we pay attention to our choices, we can learn from them.
Another way to understand creating good karma is to understand that we try to abandon unwholesome tendencies and cultivate wholesome ones. Restrain ourselves from unwholesome activities and develop wholesome ones. The restraint part, the abandoning the unwholesome, is the whole area of sila that we talk about as part of the practice. And that's the tripod, the, the, the leg of the stool of avoiding harm. So avoiding harm means restraining unwholesome actions. Pretty much the precepts. The precepts as a guideline. The precepts as navigational tools. The precepts, when you look at them deeply, they actually cover quite a lot of ground. The Buddhist literature says that keeping the precepts is like seeing the light of the fire in a dark place or a prisoner being released or returning home. The precepts at first glance seem pretty easy, the five precepts that we took tonight. Not killing, not taking that which is not given, not telling lies. But the truth of the matter is that when we really look at them deeply, they're not so simple. And for most people, um, it takes some work to... Um, to deeply commit ourselves to the precepts. One Sri Lankan monk said, if one were to just to engage with the five precepts deeply and wholeheartedly, that is the whole path. And the first time I heard that, I was like, huh, the whole path, why did he say that? Engaging deeply with the five precepts is the whole path. And what I realized is that in order to engage deeply and wholeheartedly with the five precepts, we need to purify, purify our minds of greed, hatred, and delusion, the three roots that cause us to be unskillful. And if we purify our minds and hearts of greed, hatred, and delusion, well, we've pretty much taken care of the path then, haven't we? With practice, we find that we become increasingly sensitive to even small breaches of conduct. I know that for me, over the years of practicing, that I do feel like my radar has gotten more sensitive about whether um, an action is a breach of, of ethical conduct, of sila, of the precepts. And sometimes we'll have these dilemmas where we have to figure out what is the right thing to do. It's not always so obvious either. One example is here at the um, Forest Refuge. When I first taught here, I was told that um, the teachers chanted the eight precepts with, um, with all of you. And I can see that that makes sense, that I would chant all eight because that would be helpful to people especially those last three, it gets kind of quiet sometimes, and it's helpful to the students to have that support. But there's a way that it feels, um, it doesn't always feel quite right to me, because I'm not keeping eight precepts. Um, I, <laughs> I just had dinner, and um, 
uh, I have earrings on, adornment. Um, and so there's something that feels uh, just not totally right about that for me. I haven't figured out what to do about it, but so far what I've done is I dropped my voice for the last three and to kind of try to make the distinction that I'm supporting people by saying them, but that I'm not actually taking them myself. And that may seem like a small deal, right? But to me, it's important. The precepts deserve respect. Little things like that. Sometimes it's not totally clear what to do. But practice helps us to be sensitive to the question. I'm fascinated by moral dilemmas when we have... um, a situation where it's not always clear which is the best thing to do because of um, the complexity of the situation. Like back here in IMS, back in 1985, I was on um, the staff down at the retreat center, and uh, we had a little bit of a cockroach invasion. It wasn't totally unusual back in those days because nobody would kill the cockroaches. It was like, okay, we don't kill, and um, so we're not going to kill the cockroaches. But the cockroaches got a little out of hand. They were crawling on the dining room tables. It's pretty bad. So what's, what do we do? It's not so clear, right? If we're following the precepts, we don't kill the cockroaches. So when I was on staff, they tried other ways to, to rid ourselves of the cockroaches. I remember once they held this... Um, this little uh, ritual to ask the cockroaches to leave didn't work. <laughs> Finally, somebody on staff said, you know what? I'm going to kill the cockroaches and I'll take the comma, whatever it is, you know. And uh, that person worked at IMS for a long time, fortunately, I guess. I mean, you know, in some sense, it's not a good idea for yogis to have cockroaches on the table. It's not very clean, right? So it's, it's complex. What do you do? I've mentioned, uh, I mentioned in my last talk, um, my godson, who's now 15 years old, um, when I was first asked to be his godmother, his parents are um, Cambodian refugees, and they belonged to a Lutheran church, and belonged, I would say, fairly loosely, but this church had sponsored them to come to the United States, and so they went to the church for weddings and baptisms, basically. And as my godson's mother said, she said, well, you know, it's good to cover your bases, so I'm going to you know, have my children baptized, and, uh, even though they're Buddhist. <laughs> and, um, so he, they asked me to be the godmother of this child when he was going to be born, and um, so I had to meet with the priest of this church, and he has, you know, the standard questions he had to ask, and they were, you know, are you going to bring the kid to church, and are you going to teach him, you know, churchly things? <laughs> I don't remember exactly what the questions are. And this was a moral dilemma for me. I didn't know what to do. I wanted to support my 
my friend, um, and, and I know that she really wanted me to be the godmother of her son. And yet the priest had to do his job, which was asking me these questions, even though he knew pretty well, I think, that he knew they weren't coming to church every week. I was supposed to bring the kid to church every week or something like that, you know, things like that. You know, what do I do? Do I tell the truth? Do I tell the priest that I'm not going to bring the child to church every week? Or do I say I will? I said I would. I still haven't forgotten it, though. I haven't forgotten that I said that. I figure I've invite him to, I have invited him to an IMS teen retreat. I thought maybe that would kind of cover that obligation. <laughs> Give him some religious, some, from some religious training. I don't think he would make it through a teen retreat, though. He hasn't chosen to go yet. Another fascinating story I read, um, I read this book called Moral Fitness, and it was just really interesting because it was talking about kind of developing kind of our moral compass and so one of the stories in this book was of a, um, of a policeman who was called to the scene of an accident. Uh, um, a big truck, a big trailer truck had uh, gone off the road and, and was, it was starting to burn. And, you know, it caught on fire and was starting to burn. And the driver was stuck in the front seat and he wasn't going to get out. There, you know, the, the amount of... They were going to need like a huge crane or whatever to get him out, and they weren't going to be able to get him out before he was burned. It was very obvious. And so the police arrived, and the truck driver was begging the policeman to shoot him. He didn't want to be burned up, you know. He's like, please, shoot me. <laughs> I don't want to, you know, I don't want to die that way. And the policeman didn't know what to do. I mean, think of this dilemma. It's a very hard one, you know. It's not pretty much... It's not okay to kill people. And yet, is it okay to let this person die a much more gruesome death than he needed to? So this policeman thought very quickly. And he went back to his car, his police car, and he got out the um, fire extinguisher. And apparently, if you spray somebody with a fire extinguisher, it, it causes them to go unconscious. I, that's that's what I remember from the story. So he sprayed this guy, and he didn't kill him, but he managed to put him out of his pain so that he wouldn't know what was happening. It's so complicated sometimes. Oh, we're going to run out of time here. Another thing I think that's uh, um, useful to share with you sometimes we can feel like perhaps we've done something unwholesome, unskillful, and there'll be this feeling of a burden with us that um, that will pay for our actions or something. There's um, what's known in the Tibetan tradition as the four strengths or the four powers that interfere with um, negative karma before it ripens. And what I like about these four is that it gives us a way to 
um, work with our unskillful actions. So the first one is we recognize and admit the harm we've caused. The second one is we regret our action, so we feel remorse. The third one, this is the one I really like, we engage in, a, in something, some kind of practice that will eliminate why we engaged in the harmful action in the first place. So we do something to change the circumstances that led to us doing the act harmful action. So um, maybe we make amends with somebody. Or um, an example I like to give, uh, I like cookies. I, I, I like cookies a lot. And so if I don't buy cookies in the supermarket and they're not in the house, I won't eat them. If they're in the house, I'll eat them, right? So <laughs> to not eat cookies, I can um, not buy them from the supermarket. It's like going back a step where um, uh, we eliminate the the conditions that lead to eating too many cookies. So there's recognize and admit the harm, regret the action, take some action that helps um, eliminate the conditions that lead to causing that harmful action, and then resolve not to do it again. Make a commitment not to do it again. And if we do those four, then we've done what we can. It's, um, it's like a simple plan. The Buddha talked of a lot of benefits of restraint, restraining from unwholesome and harmful actions. First, there's the, the, um, the happiness of non-remorse. Remorse, we feel remorse when we do things that are unskillful, and that's, um, that's painful. It's painful to feel regret and remorse. It's considered wholesome. It's considered good to feel remorse because it helps us to clarify our commitment to not causing more suffering. But it does, um, it's painful. So if we don't engage in causing harm, we don't feel remorse. And we also feel the bliss of blamelessness. The Buddha calls it the bliss of blamelessness or the happiness of a clear conscience. It's also great stress reduction. For example, if we tell a lie, just think how stressful that is. We have to make sure we remember who we told the lie to and what we said and cover... um, any uh, other stories that may come up linked to it, it's so much um, less stressful to tell the truth. It's great stress reduction to follow the precepts. Zen Master Bao Sui said that the precepts are a shortcut for 
a shortcut for entering the Buddha gate. That a commitment to non-harming brings a kind of happiness into our lives that nourishes our practice. Here's a Zen story from Sharon Salzberg's um, Loving Kindness book. Or maybe it's not Zen. might not be Zen. There's a story that fits in here which tells of a monk who after 24 years concluded that over all the time he had made no spiritual progress worth mentioning. He was so depressed and desperate that he decided to end his life. He got a thick rope, climbed up a tree, tied the rope around a sturdy branch, and put the noose around his neck. Just as he was about to jump, it occurred to him that over all those 24 years he had never broken a single one of the many precepts to which he had bound himself. This knowledge filled him with such a powerful rush of happiness that he at once climbed down from the tree and went on with his practice. The feeling of happiness made it possible for him to achieve such a concentrated meditation that after a few years he reached enlightenment. So we only have a few minutes to say a few words about the... um, third leg of the stool, the cultivating what is good or accomplishing what is good, what is wholesome. There's many different ways that we can think about how to cultivate these qualities in our lives. There's the qualities of the paramis, generosity, renunciation, energy, metta, patience, equanimity, Sometimes I recommend the paramis, taking the paramis as um, a guideline for wholesome qualities to develop in our lives and that we can take one that we find particularly difficult and work on it for a year or two. I've done that with a number of the paramis. Patience is one that I work on a lot take that parami and look at in my life when I'm impatient and how I can cultivate patience. Our renunciation, that's a great one to work with. At one point, my um, Chinese doctor told me that I really shouldn't eat wheat and dairy, that it wasn't good for my system. And so I undertook a non-wheat, non-dairy diet And what I liked most about doing it was the strength that I felt from the renunciation, from developing the renunciation. Just saying, no, I do like wheat. (laughs) And and I'm not strict about it anymore. I did it for a period of time. Now I, I kind of more or less follow it. But it was a great practice in renunciation, one of the paramis. Our generosity, generosity has been a focus of my practice for years. How can I cultivate more generosity? No time tonight to give you details. That's a whole nother talk. So our practice, restraining from unwholesome, cultivating what is wholesome and positive, learning from being mindful of our actions and their consequences, 
developing happy, happy karma. I'd like to end with um, from the sutras a description of the relationship between um, sila, that avoiding harm, and liberation. Discipline is for the sake of restraint, restraint for the sake of freedom from remorse. Freedom of remorse. Freedom from remorse for the sake of joy and rapture. Joy and rapture for the sake of tranquility. Tranquility for the sake of concentration. Concentration for the sake of knowledge and vision of things as they are. Knowledge and vision of things as they are for the sake of disenchantment and dispassion. Dispassion for the sake of release. Release for the sake of total unbinding without clinging or complete liberation. So restraining, refraining from causing harm, leading to liberation of the heart and mind. Let's sit for a couple minutes. May our actions of mind, body, and speech lead to positive results of happiness and peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.